Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. Welcome back to chapel. We're happy you're here. I am Chaplain Jeremiah Verdon. I'm the 303rd EOD chaplain, and I am excited to have you guys here today. You guys pay attention to what you were singing on that last song? Did you, like, try to put it into the phrase of, of you praying it? Build your kingdom here with the darkness fear? That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Build your kingdom here and let the darkness fear. When I first accepted the Lord's call to me to, uh, to be a pastor, I was on the roof of my boss's house and I was laying out black paper by myself, which you should not do because you can slip and die. It's a thing. But like God called me and I remember thinking God's called me to bring the kingdom wherever I go. To be an agent of God's kingdom, a warrior for God's kingdom, right? And I remember standing at the edge of the roof on only black paper, looking down as if I was just looking crazy, like, you don't messed up. You don't know what you allowed to happen. God called me. Build your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Because when God calls you, right? Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. Set the church on fire. Change the atmosphere. Don't you think if the church was on fire, that would be a change in atmosphere? I feel like if our church was on fire, I don't mean showing up to church. I don't mean going to church. I don't mean, you know, sometimes you talk to your chaplain about what you read that day. I mean, if you were to be on fire, how many we got here? A hundred plus? I don't know. hundred plus? What do you think would happen if the if the church caught on fire? I I dare to say Schofield Community or Schofield Barracks would be a much different place, right? That's what we're looking for. That's what that's what we do when, when us pastors when we're preparing to preach. Most of the time we're not getting ready and being like, oh man, they're gonna love my speech. Oftentimes we're like, they're gonna hate this. They're not going to like this at all, right? Amen. What we're looking for when we prepare a sermon is to change the atmosphere. Build your kingdom here. We pray. We pray for your Heavenly Father, Lord. We pray that your kingdom would be built here. Lord, we know you are everywhere. We know you are in control of all things, and we know that you call us to have faith. Lord, we know that action doesn't happen apart from you and that you don't act apart from faith. It's just evident throughout throughout Scripture. Lord, I pray that you you would empower our faith, that it wouldn't just be a statement of, yeah, I believe, but it would be a belief that caused action. And then for many of us, help us with this prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, that you would be able to show out. And that you would get the glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
That was a little, I don't know how many of y'all have ever been to Louisiana. That was Lanyap. Just a little bit extra. Okay, that's that y'all that one was free. Okay, so yeah, that's that that was for those who are behind the paywall. Okay, so Luke 18, 1 through 8. We've been doing a series on parables, right? We're doing these parables, life-giving lessons. From the parable, so if you would go take your Bible, your Bible app, your perfect memory, whatever it is, transfer it to Luke chapter 18, verse 1. That's where we're going to go. We're going to look at yet another parable that Jesus told. That would be Luke chapter number 18, verse 1. If you're there, say I am. He is, okay. I is, she is, we are. Okay. This is, this is the parable. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose the heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary." For a while he refused, but after, after, afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So when I was first preparing this sermon, the, the sermon I had prepared a week ago is drastically different from this one. And we'll, time will tell which one was the good one. Um, if this one isn't good to you, the first one was, and I just changed, right? So it was drastically different, and here's the reason why. And I always like to add my first point, point number one, is that whenever we are looking at parables, we have to ask ourselves, why was this parable told in its original setting? And why do you need to ask that question? Because... If you just read the parable the way many do, you know, I'm going to read the parables of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to read the parables of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to learn the lessons that the parables teach. Well, the lesson you would get today is pray, pray again, pray some more. And when you don't think God's listening, he is, and keep praying. That's a good lesson. That is a good sermon, isn't it? That will preach. I could preach a good solid 50 minutes on that. I won't because I changed my sermon a little bit. Because if you look at why in the world did Jesus even tell this parable, it changes the tone a lot. Now, my first sermon would have been truthful. Pray. Pray some more. When you get tired of praying, pray again. And God is listening. That is still true. Nothing that I was going to say would be a lie. But we're going to change the tone just a little bit. If you look just above to Luke chapter 17, in verse 20, it says, 
being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. Which means we get to talk about the one topic that everybody at church always loves to argue about or talk about, whichever one you, you consider it. I've found that whenever I was in the, in the real world, not the army world, and I would come to a new church or I would visit a church and they would say, hey, uh, Jeremiah, I would like for you to do a Bible study for us. You're going to be here for a week. We're going to do a Bible study. They would always say, hey, can we do a Bible study on Revelations? Which there's no S at the end of the word, Revelation. And, and ultimately what they're saying is, tell us about when is the kingdom of God going to come? Tell me when I can expect this promise from the Bible. Because the Bible promises that Jesus is coming back. That is a promise that we live as Christians on a daily basis. Jesus is coming. Let me tell you this right now. Jesus is coming back. That is a truth if you believe the scripture, and it's a truth if you don't believe the scripture. The, tr the scripture just happened to tell you the truth. Jesus is coming back. So ultimately what ends up happening is I go up to a new church. They say, they, I, I like to tell new churches, hey, there are books in the Bible that don't start with the word letter R because they only ever want to stutter, study Revelation or Romans. And that's it. The rest of the Bible does exist. And what they're really asking when they say, can you, we study Revelation, is I want to know what the future is going to look like. Yeah. I want to know what the end times are going to be. And inevitably, you can start that study, and I give you two weeks before you have 15 people in your office angry at you because you disagreed with how they thought the world was going to end. <laughs> Guaranteed. And at the end of the day, that's not even the point. So what he actually says... What he did, I'm not going to read the whole passage, Luke 17, 20, all the way down to chapter 18, is he gives some truths. And here's the problem. What was Jesus doing on earth? He was bringing what? It, it, we had like four parables about the kingdom of, yeah, the kingdom of heaven and what it looked like. And ultimately what the kingdom of heaven looked like was the church on earth. Operating appropriately. The church on earth operating appropriately with enemies, with problems, with hypocrites, with all that. All that was going to be there. But the kingdom of heaven was the word of God being spread out across the entire world, creating a community of believers who all come together and worship God on a regular basis. It's the kingdom of God. So what was Jesus doing when he came? He was bringing what? The kingdom of heaven, right? But was that what they were asking? They were asking a question that they shouldn't have been asking. See, he was coming to bring the church, which was the kingdom of heaven, and they were looking for when God was going to rule. They were looking for when they were going to have a Messiah show up and take out the Romans because they were pesky. They were looking for a time when they were going to have a kingdom on earth. So God had to give, Jesus had to give two answers. And he did. He basically said, okay, so the kingdom of heaven is going to show up. So that's going to be the days of the kingdom. Also, 
there's going to be the day of the Son of Man. These are two events. Both are the coming of the kingdom. Okay? So, the day of the kingdom, the days of the kingdom, it won't really be super observable to the whole world. It's going to gradually grow, like we learned in the parables, that from a little tiny mustard seed, it was going to grow to be a giant thing, that as leaven was kneaded into dough, it would get bigger and bigger and bigger, and that people would share the gospel, they would plant the seeds, and they would grow, and all the things we've learned for the past four or five weeks were going to happen. It's not going to be super observable, but it's going to be big, which it has been. Right? The kingdom of heaven. Now, the day of the Son of Man is going to be unmistakable. The day of the Son of Man is going to be, what he's describing is when Jesus comes back, like lightning coming across the sky. You're not going to miss it. I wonder if we missed the rapture and didn't know. Now you didn't. It's going to be ridiculously observable. And there are two events, right? So, the day of the kingdom won't be observable. People will go about their business they're going to be married and being given to marry. They're going to go to work. Well, at the day of the Son of Man, people will be pulled out of their business. It talks about one woman grinding next to another woman, and then the other one's gone. And one woman going to work, and then they're gone. It's going to be disruptive to business, right? We're not going to be... We're not going to be I don't think we're going to have jet planes flying and just falling out of the sky like some movies have portrayed. That's my, not my personal opinion. However, it's going to be noticeable. God is going to show up, and it's going to be a big deal. People will continue in the days of the kingdom. Now, this is a big deal here. People are going to continue to suffer during the church era. People are going to continue to suffer. Actually, if you just go back and read 17, 20 through the end of the chapter, the tone isn't super happy. It's a very sad-toned passage because he's saying, oh, man, things are about to get really bad. That there will be suffering. That people will reject Christ. That people will reject you for accepting Christ. That all these things are going to be really, really sad. And during that time, there's going to be sadness. Right? Well, in the day of the Son of Man, God will deal with the causes of suffering. You say, well, I want him to deal with it now. Well, that's coming on a day, and it's not today, unless it ends up being today. Right? Jesus will deal with all suffering one day, and it's not today unless it is today. The church is today, and Jesus is coming back. The purpose of God, the people of God will suffer, suffer an increasingly unjust world. On the day of the Son of Man, Jesus will handle all the injustice. So you say, well, gosh, what do I do with that little tidbit? Who cares about that? It shapes why he told the parable. We have to remember that the parable is to point us to the coming of Christ and that until that day comes, we must pray and not lose heart. There is coming a day when Jesus is going to return and there's going to be suffering during that time and until that day, it is our job to Pray and not lose heart. Guys, y'all going to have to keep up with me here. It's going to have to be to do what? To pray. 
Pray and not lose heart. You're going to have to walk, when you're walking out of here, and you're like, I wonder what that pastor wanted us to do. It's not going to be confusing. I want you to pray and not lose heart. It's the not losing heart thing that's hard. Right? Because what I find is once you lose heart, prayer stops. So, well, I keep praying, and, and he don't do what I tell him to do, so I'm going to quit. Pray and don't lose heart. And so he tells this story. He tells this story. He says there's a widow. She's in this town, and there's this lousy judge. He's just this rotten, no-good human being that ended up becoming a judge. And uh, he had no fear of God and had no respect for people. And the widow just kept coming back, and he's like, man, this woman's going to drive me nuts. I guess I'll give her what she wants. Gives her what she wants, and then he says, don't you think God's better than that? That's the parable, right? So what can we learn from that? That we should do what? Okay, thank you. This is going to be a fun little game. All right, so here's what I want you to see. Like In the parable, the widow is us. It is God, that is Jesus' description, that is Jesus' example of his church. The widow in this story is the, point number two, the widow is God's example of what we ought to be. This is the good for us. This is us doing what we're supposed to be doing. It's very interesting that God chose a widow because in the time when Jesus was speaking, Widows were not overly powerful. Actually, the widow was probably the least powerful of all because she didn't have a husband, and I could feel all the feminists going, I don't need no man. Well, then you did. Okay? At that time, you did, and in that culture, you did, and during that time, if you were married and then you lost your husband, you lost all your bargaining power. You lost your your ability to own possessions. You lost your ability to make purchases. You were basically on the whim of everyone else. You were powerless. That's a hard place to be, isn't it? Well, it'd be okay if people were kind. How many of you have experienced that that is a normal trait in humanity? Apart from Jesus Christ. This is also very interesting because the Bible is very, very... I mean, I'm talking about the Old Testament. When you're looking at Jewish law, boy, it protects the widows. If you, it, like, if, if you were married and your husband died, that husband was required, who had a brother, that brother was required to take you on as his responsibility. Like you were, you were by law, now the brother's responsibility to provide for it. And then, like if you, if you look at Deuteronomy, which I'm not going to ask you to do, Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, it talks about how you're even allowed to plant your crops. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and, and forget a sheaf in the field, so you're, you're reaping and you just miss a lot lane, do not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The Lord your God may bless you in all your work and work hands. When 
you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of the vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So the idea is this. If you were a Jew in the time when Jesus is speaking, you knew that the requirement for culture was to take care of the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So now we have a widow here who is getting berated and beaten down, and she has one thing to fall back on. I, hate, I feel you. The judge, right? No. It's the law. It's the promises given by God. The promise given by God to the people of Israel was that the widows would be cared for. They would be cared for, they would be taken care of, that we would ensure that they did not go impoverished, that justice would that they would receive injustice continually. It was promised by the Old Testament law. What she had to fall back on was the promises of God. Who she had faith in was who? God. Her faith was in the promise of God. And because her faith was in the promise of God, she had the power to keep going back to a judge who had power over her. She continued to return. Now, do we have promises? At all? As the church? As New Testament Christians? As people who believe in Jesus Christ? Do we have any promises? Okay, good. If all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? All you have to do, what's that word, that faith word? You have to believe that he died and was rose again and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and Savior and he will save you. That's a promise and that salvation will be eternal. We have a promise of heaven. We have a promise that Jesus is coming back. We have a promise that if you go to him in prayer that he will listen uh, if you look in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who has asked receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for him, him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We have a God who listens. We have promises such as heaven, salvation, the Holy Spirit. And if we can place faith in those promises, then we become powerful. Are we powerful? We're the widow. See this? We are the widow. We're powerless, we're poor, we're put out, but she's persistent. Right? She was persistent because of the power that she had given to her by God, and that's us. We are God's elect, and we are powerless apart from the promises of God. And you say, well, I feel powerless. Well, maybe you don't believe the promises of God. My daughter, she is 
she's a wonderful gift. She's a little nervous about things. She, she has a little, little nervousness. And one time, just one time out of 275 million, Rachel cooked chicken and one piece had some pink in it. One piece. And I looked at that one piece of chicken and said, let's not eat that one piece of chicken. She said, well, well, I don't want you to get sick. Well, that is the only thing that stuck in her brain. That's it. Forever and ever, amen. We, so we cook her chicken, and she says, is it done? We go, we cooked the chicken. It's done. Inevitably, she's going to take her little fork and knife and cut every single little piece, every single piece. Look at it. It, and if there's like that perfect amount of juice in the chicken that you really want, she's like, I don't know if it's done. I'm probably going to die if I eat it. I go, Ruthie, you, I promise you this chicken is healthy. And she goes, you don't care if I die? And I go, what am I supposed to do right here? I'm supposed to be caring. I'm supposed to be compassionate. I'm supposed to be helping. At the same time, eat the chicken, little girl, right? And I'm just about to go nuts. And what is her problem? She doesn't believe what? She doesn't believe my promises. The, the problem isn't the truth of the promise. The problem isn't that I'm untrustworthy. The problem is that she will not believe from now on that, you know, we're just going to have to start feeding her Cheetos and Funyuns for the rest of her life because she's terrified of chicken. Right? No. And that will be bad for her, won't it? That would hurt her, wouldn't it? She would end up unhealthy, wouldn't it? What would be good for her if she did what? Eat the chicken. In order to eat the chicken, she has to do what? Believe my promises. I promise you, if you eat this chicken, you will not die. It was the funniest thing. Rachel's sitting there, and I'm trying to convince her to eat this chicken. And she goes, I'm just concerned. I said, I don't care. She goes, you don't care if I die. Rachel loses it. I've lost all control over the situation, all because she won't believe my promises. Now, that's us, right? How often is that us? Can you just kind of like, if God had our personality, if he looks at us and says, I want you to just do this. I want you to follow this pattern. I want you to pray and don't lose heart. I want you to pray, 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 pray and don't lose heart. I promise you that if you pray and don't lose heart, then I will bring justice and I'll bring it sweet, swiftly. Right? And we go, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. He's like, for the love of God, I don't care what you don't know. You don't care if I die. He doesn't even love me. And that's us with God. And he made us promises, didn't he? And either he's a liar or those promises are true. And this widow says, no, no, no. The Bible promised me justice. And because the Bible promised me justice, I have the ability to persistently go to this jerk who will not give me justice, but God promised it, so I believe it's going to happen. That's the example. God promised it. I believe it. It has to happen. God promised it. I believe it. It has to happen. That's the widow. Now, don't forget, what's the context in all this? The coming of Jesus Christ. Don't forget, the whole point is the coming of Jesus Christ. So now, God starts trying, Jesus starts trying to convince us of the trustability of this thing. So that's what we look at. We look at 
My next point is that Christ is the righteous judge. Verse 7 says, And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So what we have here is we have a comparison between the judge and God. And what we're looking to see is the definition of God by the contrast of the judge. We say, well, this is what the judge is. God's the opposite of that, and this is who God must be. You're like, who is God? Well, this lousy judge was did not fear God, and Jesus is God. Also, he would not do what his father did not command. Jesus is God. This lousy judge did not respect man. Christ created man and loved them. Enough to come to die. This lousy judge was lazy. Which, by the way, just going to drop this as, as a little. By the way, when we're looking at what God doesn't like, one of the things is laziness. Just drop that there and move back over here. Because Christ is active. Continually, persistently active. The lousy judge is not interested. He says, well, this woman, just leave me alone. She's not going to leave me alone. I'll do whatever I have to do to get her to leave me alone. And what I've heard people tell about this parable, they say, well, look, even if this lousy judge, we just pestered him enough to where he finally gave justice. See, if we pester God long enough, he'll finally, you think God's up there like, oh, man, this guy just won't stop coming to me. That's not the, per that's not what we have. The lousy judge was that way. What we have with Christ is he's like, oh, good, my son, my daughter, my child. They're coming to me. He's active and wonderfully excited to hear you pray. And it's that we go, yeah, well, we got to pray because, you know, that gives power to God. God doesn't get power from us. How ridiculous is that? That's just a ridiculous thought. No. We are empowered by our relationship with Christ. And he says, look, when you come to me, it's good for you. Yeah. So keep coming. He is an active. He's not looking when you come into the judge. And he's like, oh, gosh, not again. When we come to Christ and we feel that way, don't we? How often do we feel that way? Like, I swear, if I go to Jesus again, I think I'm just pestering him. I'm just bothering him. If I mess up again, I'm just going to bother him. If I screw up again, it's, God, he's just going to get so frustrated with me. God calls me to live a perfect life, and I didn't live a perfect life. He's going to be so irritated with me. No, that's the lousy judge. So we can see the opposite is Christ. He says, oh, no, you screwed up again. Let me help you. Oh, you're coming to me again? So glad. Oh, you need power? Here, take some. I am so excited for you to come to me continually. Oh, did you fall down again? Let me help you up. That's the God we serve, not the lousy judge. We often look at God and we give him lousy judge attributes. We think of him that way. But you got to realize what he's saying is this is the opposite the lousy judge is not interested in justice. God promises justice. The lousy judge gives justice to save himself irritation. God gives just out of God gives justice out of love for his children. Yes. Lousy judge took his time giving justice, and Christ says, "I will give it speedily." 
So if you can trust this lousy judge to do what's right because he's bound by the promises of God and he's bound by his own self-interest, how much more can we trust God to answer prayer? If we do what? Pray and don't lose heart. How much more can we trust God if we pray and do not lose heart? See, I don't think we have a problem with people going to church. We have a church full right now. Praise God. I don't think we have a problem with people taking initiative. We're in the army. You don't have a choice. I think we have a problem with people trusting God. I think our problem is we trust ourselves very much. I can do it. I can get it done. I don't, I don't, really, I don't really know what personality type I have, but it's the pick yourself up by your bootstraps guy. That's my personality. No, I can fix it. I can fix it. I can fix it. I can fix it. Which is really hard when you're a counselor primarily on those days, right? The truth is, is that God called us to pray and don't lose heart. That's it. That's our calling. Our calling isn't to be the strongest. Our calling isn't to be the one that fixes it. Our calling is to be the ones who trust the one who promised to fix it. Right? We are called to be like little children going to our father. I don't know how many of you have little children, but they expect you to fix everything. Right? And while you are a human and you might be like, golly, fix a thing on your own. Just one. Right? God is saying, stop fixing it on your own. I'm big enough to handle your stuff. I can do all the things. Our problem isn't that we have an unreliable judge. Our problem, most of the time, is that we don't trust the judge. I don't hear a whole lot of amens. Maybe y'all trust God more than most people I've seen. Maybe y'all don't have a problem with trying to do it yourself. Maybe y'all don't have a problem with not praying, but I've seen it in other people, not you. Y'all are awesome. But I've seen it in a lot where the biggest issue wasn't is God trustworthy? It was can I force myself to trust him? So so the last point is this. And And he says it in his last verse. Nevertheless, point four is keep the faith and pray. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So he tells this whole parable about a woman who has faith when they probably shouldn't have faith. And he says, don't worry, the Son of Man is coming back to answer your question, Pharisees. But my question is this, when he comes back, is there even going to be anybody who has faith? Now, the Greek translation, you can translate it either way, and I think it, it, it works better this way. Instead of saying, is there anyone who's going to have faith? It's it really, I think it really translates really well to, does anyone have the faith? Not just faith, but the faith. Specifically in what he's talking about. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? 
Do you believe that God is in control, that God is in, has his hand in this world, that his very essence holds this whole thing together? Do you believe that he made a promise to return and that he is going to return? Now, I don't care if you're pre, post, ah, pan, whatever millennial view you have, every one of them has Jesus coming back. Do you believe that Jesus made a promise to come back? And if he made a promise, what's going to happen? He's going to come back. And you can just feel him in this parable saying, yeah, I'm saying it's short, but you are really short-lived things. So you're going to feel like it's going to drag on a little bit. And you can see this in Peter. Peter's like, man, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? You know, like 2,000 years later, we're like, yeah, right? Why hadn't he come back yet? Jesus is like, I can tell you're going to think this takes a while, but I'm telling you, this is my promise. I'm coming back. I'm going to handle it. So while you're waiting, I need for you to keep the faith. The common paradigm, the common thing is, hey, this is hard. I'm going to trust God for about two, three months. And then after it doesn't work out, after those two, three months, I'm going to jump to something new. My workout routine, my self-help books, my video games, whatever it is you jump to and you just abandon keeping the faith. And that, that faith requires us to go to God. I, I cannot see in the Bible a faith apart from prayer. Can you? Because Jesus died and he tore the veil. And he provided for us free access to who? God. Personal, free access to God, right? And he says, trust me. Believe me. If you ask me, I'll give it to you. If you ask me and it's good, I will provide it for you. That's a promise. And then you say, oh, I don't know if I want to talk to this guy. Is it a prayer problem? Is it a discipline problem? Or is it a faith problem? Because if I had a box that I put out there and I said, every time you come touch this box, I'll put $100 in your bank account. And the first time you touch the box, you got $100 in the bank account. How many of you would be out here every day touching the box? Right? Because you'd be like, oh, I know it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I believe him. I trust him. Well, God says I'm going to answer prayers. And either you believe he's going to or not. See, my dad was a pastor. And a framing carpenter. So he owned a framing carpenter business, and I learned that. And decided I didn't want to do that and went the other way, right? Every single sermon, he would say something to the effect of the greatest gift God has given us apart from salvation is free access to God. The greatest gift God has given us outside of salvation is the ability to come before the feet of Jesus Christ, but come before the feet of the creator of the world and pray, make your petitions known and have him listen to you and have him love you and have him care for you and not have to go to a single priest, not have to go through a single ritual, just come to him and pray. Greatest gift you have ever been given, but we all look for something else. And I know this is the truth because I've watched it happen. I watched it happen with Everyone I've ever known, and the best story is my wife. And this is the one that I'm going to close on, okay? This is the story I'm going to close on. When we were young, I, I guess it was somewhere around eight years ago, Rachel had Ruth. Rachel had our first baby. Now, that birth was traumatic 
on Rachel. It caused her to get sick afterwards. She got substantially and severely sick. And you say, okay, so she got sick. She had a hard pregnancy for four years. She got substantially and severely sick for four years. And I would be at church preaching, and then after I would get done preaching, I'd come to the, 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 this part of the stage, and I would pray, and I would weep, and I would cry, and the deacons would come up to me and be like, dude, this is a bad look for you. No, this is a good look. Weeping before the feet of the Lord for change. And Rachel would continually be like, I need something to fix it. I need something to fix it. And we would pray and we would weep and we would pray and we would weep. And it wasn't until like four years later after Rachel had gone through everything and she got healing. And she's better now. And she's good now. And she's, this is what she said. Everyone would come to me and say, you need to pray and read your Bible. And I would always say, I know that. I got that. Pray read your Bible. But what's going to fix it? I know that. I got that. But what's going to fix it? And it wasn't until she fully submitted to praying and reading her scripture that she got healing. But she did, and it did. God answered them. Where, how many of us are this guy? We're, are, are, are the other people who say, I want to trust God. I want to, but give me the self-help. Give me the other way. And, and the, you know, the pastor comes up to you and says, well, can I pray with you? Like, gosh, thoughts and prayers. Can there be anything more useless? No, it is the gift given by God for us to receive answers. To come before the feet of the Lord and request them. My prayer is this. That we would be people of faith. And that that faith would then turn to prayer. And that prayer would turn into changing the atmosphere. Heavenly Father, praise man, come up. Heavenly Father, God, just thank you for prayer. Thank you for the ability to come to you. Lord, help us to be grateful for what you have given us. And through that gratitude, help us to have a desire to come to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.